let's attempt a brief introduction to the financial crisis of 2008 and a little bit of background on what happened there and what this means for our understanding of financial markets now. The beginnings of this are in the design of financial markets and the types of products that you have in financial markets. And I think key to understanding how the crisis came about and how it spread is to have an appreciation of the concept of derivative products themselves. Seen in a variety of contexts, and you're aware of the various types of financial products that are available in markets. Things like loans, bonds, different types of debt, both corporate and private, that exists in financial markets. And this is what powers financial markets. Because the core idea behind all these different types of financial obligations is the fact that they can be traded. We're not simply talking about bilateral transactions between, say, a student who gets a student loan or somebody who gets a consumer loan or somebody who buys a car on a leasing agreement. This is not simply the bilateral relationship between that customer and the the provider of this financial product that's important. What is perhaps most important is what happens after. The financial product that is generated, be it a loan, a credit card debt, a mortgage for a house, a series of other financial obligations, a series of corporate bonds, these do not just stay with the originator of the financial product, but they are traded in markets. And in the same way that we have discussed, we have stock markets where corporates are trading their equities. We have the financial markets where various types of debt are being traded as well. And what was the reason for having these debt markets is that this can accelerate the flow of money and increase liquidity. Somebody who makes a loan obviously will receive repayment of that loan probably slowly but in order to generate the money quickly so the money can be reinvested in something else it makes sense not only to wait for these gradual repayments along with the interest and then make some profit at some future date but it makes sense to actually speed up the process by passing on that debt passing on that obligation to somebody else if you think about this not simply as individual transactions, but you think about them in bulk, multiple transactions, multiple types of things being sold on at the same time, then the whole thing begins to make sense. The bank that has given you a loan stands to make a profit when you repay that loan at the end together with interest. If the bank sells on your loan to somebody else, they will get their money back immediately. They will get back more than what they gave you but they will not get the totality of what you owe them, meaning the loan and the interest. That will go to somebody else who's purchasing this obligation. Of course, there would be no point for somebody purchasing that obligation to give the bank exactly the same money as they stand to make in the end. So they're going to give the bank a little bit less and they take more, a little bit more for themselves at the end of the loan period. So this discount in the value of the total product is what makes it worth it for the person who eventually purchases this obligation. So you're happy, you got your loan, you're making your repayments. The bank is happy 
because it passed on this obligation to somebody else, it got rid of the risk of you potentially defaulting, and it got more money than the money that they gave you originally. The person who purchased this obligation at the end is happy because they're happy to take on the risk, they're happy to wait, and they will eventually, when you repay the loan, they will get a higher amount of money than what they gave to the bank to purchase it. Moving on from the transaction on a one-by-one, I mean, we understand why this makes sense on a one-on-one, but think of them as a bundle. It makes a lot more sense to the bank not only to take this individual loan from you and sell it on and get its money quickly, it makes sense for the bank to bunch together all sorts of these little loans and sell them together as a package. Because usually you can obtain better prices if you put a package of financial products together and sell it on. And you can also diversify your risk by putting together a package. The person who buys this package could be somebody who bought it as a result of a bilateral transaction, or it could be somebody who bought this as a product traded in a financial market. What happens very often is that various types of financial obligations, a whole bunch of consumer loans, or a whole bunch of student loans, or a whole bunch of mortgages that are usually of a similar background and have got similar characteristics, they get bundled together into a single financial product. Then this product is sold in the market. It becomes something that people can invest in. In that process, quite a lot of people make money because the financial product that's been put together needs to be created by somebody. So usually the originator of the product, it could be the bank itself that does it, or it could be a third party, will get a fee for putting together the product. So they make some money. They will get a credit rating agency to put a label on the product to inform everybody else as to how good it is, what are its possibilities of default and so on. The credit referencing agency is going to make some money. The lawyers that are going to have to check everything and put together the documentation and make sure that it complies with any regulatory requirements are also going to make some money. So there's already like a, a universe of people that are making money out of the origination of financial resources. These financial, uh, financial products, once created, then they get sold in the markets. While they're being sold, obviously, the originator of the product is making some money. The people who bought them are then able to do a number of things. They could sell them on to somebody who's going to pay a higher price for it so they make a profit, or they could rebundle them into new products themselves. And this is the process of creating derivative products. A derivative is exactly this, is a combination of existing financial obligations that then gets put together into a package and sold on in a marketplace for financial products. The complexity of it accelerates after that point because there's nothing to say that your derivative products need to be homogeneous in nature and need to contain the same stuff. So this is not like a can of beans that it only needs to have beans inside. It's not necessary that your financial product only contains mortgages from a certain location of a certain risk profile. It contains a bunch of things. It could contain mortgages together with student loans, together with auto loans. You can put together whatever product you want. The credit rating agencies are going to give it a label. 
and then you'll be able to pass it on to the market to whomever wants to buy it. Also, the person who chooses to invest, they could invest not simply by buying the totality of the product, but they could choose to invest in what are called different tranches of the product. So they could channel their investment into a specific segment. This creates what are known as layer cakes. Um, think about a cake, if you're watching MasterChef, you've probably seen a lot of those lately. Layer cakes, different layers with different flavors in different segments. A derivative product that has been put together as a layer cake gives you an opportunity to invest in different tranches of that cake and the different tranches have got different risk profiles because the cake has been built in a way that the top of it, the nice cream, is going to be the one that pays first in the event of default. Then they pay the second layer, then they pay the third layer, the fourth layer and so on. So if you are buying your investment in the top of the cake, you have the highest chance of being repaid in an insolvency event. And of course, because it's the safest bit of the cake, it's going to be more expensive for you to buy and it's going to give the lower return. If you're buying in the middle or towards the bottom of the cake, then of course, if the cake as a total product defaults, you're going to lose your money. However, it was cheaper to buy and it's giving you a much, much better return if in fact it reaches maturity and it pays off. So your derivative products are not simply these correlations of different types of mortgages and loans and, and credits being put together into a single product. They're put together into products that contain multiple things inside them. And the investment that comes in does not even need to come to the totality of the product. You could buy yourself a slice from whichever piece of the cake you want and then its behavior will be different. Its chances of repayment will be different, the risk profile will be different, the return that it will give to you will be different. And all of this is put together in a way that creates a variety of financial products that cater to different risk appetites. Layers of various products and different behaviors. The question is, why would you want to have this sort of variety and who would invest in it? Think about the banks and their regulatory requirements. The banks are supposed to conform to rules that oblige them to invest in diversified ways. So the need for different types of investments at different levels of risk is embedded in the regulatory system. Not only is it a sort of profit-making financial necessity, but is also part of the regulatory system itself. So the creation of derivative financial products built in the form of a layer cake will give the banks the opportunity to fulfill both their business plans and their regulatory requirements by putting different bits of their money to different levels of those products. So it's a in fact a clever mechanism that allows diversification of risk and diversification of investment which is what your average fund manager would be looking to do. What happens if you want even more diversity, if you, can, if you want more products? Not just cakes that are made out of a variety of loans and different types of credits, but what if you wanted something more exotic? Now, it is even possible to create financial products that contain other things, that contain types of insurance. 
you can even create products by reference to existing products. And this is where the system becomes rather difficult to follow and difficult to understand. One of the key components of these elements and one of the key motivators in trouble in the financial crisis uh, was the idea of credit default swaps. These are types of insurance products that you can hold in order to minimize your risk in the event of default of the person that you're doing business with, your counterparty. The difference between credit default swaps and average insurance products, however, is that you do not need to own the resource. So you can effectively take fire insurance on somebody else's house. This is not something that you're allowed to do normally, but you're allowed to do it in financial markets with these types of products. So one of the ways that you could invest in markets was by reference to other people's products and by reference to other types of financial investments, and you didn't even need to own them. So this became a little bit less like stock market investing and more like betting in a, in a casino type thing. So not only you had your traditional products, your traditional bonds, the derivative products, the layer cakes, you then had a series of what are called CDOs or collateralized debt obligations containing a number of things, including those credit default swaps. These products themselves then could be repackaged in additional derivative products, creating even more cakes. Now, obviously, it becomes apparent at some point that the further away you get from the original resource, the more difficult it becomes to trace what is the content of a financial product and the more difficult it becomes to assess the credit risk. This is the architecture of the system that allowed the financial crisis to happen. Where the system, in fact, got into trouble was when this complexity had been created, had been fed into markets, had been fed into products, had become the investments of a whole series of financial operators, and at that point the market started to turn bad. Quite a lot of the financial products in the United States were built on things referencing the housing market. Not so much the retail investment and consumer debt, but primarily they were products referencing housing loans, mortgages. So when the housing market in the US started to take a turn for the worse and prices first stopped rising and then started to fall, the underlying value of many of these financial products started to be affected. Because the original mortgages had been fed into so many different cakes and were pro present in so many levels and referenced by so many other products, it was very easy for a loss of value and an increase of risk to traverse through the system very, very quickly. When it became significant and it started triggering the credit default swaps and all those insurance products, it fed again back into all the financial products and the layer cakes and so on and created a sort of negative loop where every development was affecting things worse and then these were in, in, in turn affecting more things worse and the whole market got into a negative spiral where the values and the prices for all products were dropping like a stone and the risk profiles for everything were going through the roof. The initiator for the crisis was what they call the subprime mortgage in the US. These were home mortgages given to people who were less able to pay them. 
but it quickly moved through the system due to the architecture of these financial products. This began to happen in about 2005-2006, so it took a couple of years for the rottenness in the system to become apparent and to affect the values of the products and the risk profiles, but it reached boiling point in 2007 and broke out into the wild in 2008. What happened then is that everybody looked at their portfolio and they realized that, in fact, there isn't much of value or perhaps nothing of value in their entire portfolio. It became impossible to assess the value in the financial assets that pretty much everybody was holding on to. You didn't know whether the stuff that you had are of any value at all. You didn't know if the products that you've got, your entire portfolio, could be made out of things that have already gone insolvent. And there was no way of figuring this out. Plus, there was no way of waiting to see if it's going to be that way. That caused what is known as a global credit crunch, meaning that nobody knew what was the value of the assets that they were holding. So everybody stopped trading till they figured out what's going on. The sudden lack of movement sucked liquidity out of the market. These markets need to be liquid to stay operational. The whole functioning of financial markets is based upon the idea of available cash, available buyers and sellers that are buying and selling these things constantly. Any blockage in the system sparks collapse. So when liquidity evaporated out of the market, transactions stop happening. With the lack of transactions, it was even more difficult to value products. So people were afraid to sell because they didn't know what was the value of what they had and what was the value of what they're buying. And since nobody wanted to buy or sell, it was even more impossible to assess value. So everything absolutely stopped. This caused a catastrophic collapse in financial markets and it caused a catastrophic collapse in the real economy as people realized that they couldn't get credit anymore. Nobody's credit lines were renewed, nobody's loans were renewed, nobody could get new loans, absolutely nothing was happening in financial markets. Hence, the apocalypse, when the governments realized that either they step in and put money into the system to start things again, or the entire market would collapse. And what would that mean? It would mean that you would go out to your ATM to withdraw cash and the bank would be shut, the ATM would not be working, you would have no access to your money anymore and nothing to do about this at all. People would be left not only in the United States but pretty much on a global system just with the money that they had in their pockets. This would cause social unrest and unimaginable suffering for a global population which was not acceptable, therefore the government stepped in. Well, initially they did not, hence the collapse of Lehman Brothers, but after the effects of that became obvious, governments stepped in and effectively subsidized the entire banking system and tried to keep things going. If they had not done this, then the crisis would be a lot worse. Of course, we can have long debates as to the way in which was done and then what was required of the banks to return to stability thereafter. But the reality in 2008-2009 was that if extraordinary action was not taken by governments, the financial system would have completely collapsed. It didn't. That's why we're here now to talk about it. I think this offers a good introduction to the idea of financial architecture, financial markets, the design and operation of financial products, 
and the capacity for mistake or error or crisis to be generated out of this financial product.